Hello and welcome to the Michael Collins House podcast. In this episode, we'll speak to Tom O'Neill about his book on Spike Island and its time as a Republican detention centre and prison in the 1920s. Before we get to Tom, we should, I think, first of all, uh, say a little bit about why we've chosen this week to launch this podcast. At this time, roughly 100 years ago, the truce had just come into being, and Michael Collins was seeking uh, permission to visit his brother, uh, Johnny, who was imprisoned on Spike Island at that stage. The permission wasn't granted, as the British authorities claimed that they couldn't guarantee Collins's safety in the martial law area, something which Collins uh, thought was uh, ridiculous. These, that story was, was uh, told to us by Royal DeWire in his joint biography of De Valera and Collins. Um, so why was he visiting his brother Johnny on Spike Island? Well, obviously because Johnny was imprisoned on Spike Island. And I think before we get on to Spike Island and to uh, why Johnny was there and what was going on at Spike Island at the time, we'll speak just a little bit about Johnny himself. And the time is quite opportune to do that as well because we've just finished uh, a whole lot of research into Johnny Collins and into Collins's uh, earliest days. Uh, his youth in particular, I think, is something that's been more or less, I won't say ignored, but certainly uh, understudied by quite a lot of his uh, biographers. So we've, I hope, contributed significant knowledge uh, with an essay that we will publish on the Michael Collins website this week. It's a substantial piece of work. It's almost 10,000 words, uh, so it wouldn't quite fit in most journals. Uh, we will put it on our website, even though we would hope that it is of uh, a journalistic or a journal standard, rather a history journal standard. Um, and it, as I say, speaks about Michael Collins's youth and his early influences. Uh, giving hopefully quite a lot of information, new information, and also I think examining the more traditional biographies as they were kind of descended mostly from Beasley and, and Talbot. Um, and in so doing then we also speak about Johnny. Now when we speak about Johnny the first thing we need to say is that he was born in 1878 which made him 12 years older than Michael. Um, he was, he and her, as the oldest son he inherited the farm at Woodfield and the farm, certainly by the time he, he later disposed of it, and probably I would say at the time he inherited it, it was around 80 acres, and it was in seven different plots. Uh, now the seven different plots are interesting, and we go into the essay, or into in the essay where they were and what they, uh, how they may have come about. But basically I think for the purposes of this it's sufficient to say that Michael Collins growing up on a farm like that uh, couldn't possibly have failed to ask, I think, why his farm was scattered throughout the townland. And I think the answer was probably uh, the famine. The Collinses, like most families, would have gained certain plots during the famine, like most Irish farming families. Um, so the legacy of the famine was, if you like, almost written in the ditches of the farm that, that Michael Collins walked uh, with his father, and his father had, as we know, survived the famine. Um, now, the Collins operation was a big one by by. Uh, the standards of the time. Uh, biggest farm in that townland. They had uh, more outhouses, they had a uh, better house than most other, uh, than all of their, their neighbours in that townland. Indeed, they had a three up, two down farmhouse when uh, such houses were very, very rare in the Irish countryside. Uh, Woodfield House, as they called it, was completed in 1900. 
the farm was mixed. They uh, seemed to have, like most farmers, um, they had a lot of various types of agricultural activity going on out there. And as I say, the family was wealthy enough to complete that house probably, you know, a decade or more ahead of most other farming families. Um, so they were a wealthy family. They had considerable newspaper investments at various times as well. And we get into in, in the paper that we publish and in another paper that we put in the Clonakilty Journal, why those newspapers came about. Um, Collins's mother, um, her family were mostly civil servants. Lots of her siblings were civil servants, teachers. She had clerics in her extended family. Uh, so they were, I suppose, by um, they were upwardly mobile, well-educated, uh, clever people, um, and that's possibly why I think she may have chosen the civil service um, as a useful career for Michael, and encouraged him perhaps to to pursue that. Now Johnny himself um, was, as I say, as the eldest son, probably always earmarked for the farm. What none of the biographers will tell you is that for whatever reason, I think possibly because Johnny himself was never overly vocal about it, but Johnny had a political career of his own long before Michael had, and he ran for election for the United Irish League in 1902. And the United Irish League was William O'Brien's faction of the parliamentary movement at that time. The William O'Brien, Dillonite, Redmondite split, if you like, is, is a long and complex tale, um, but basically William O'Brien, I suppose, tended to have different opinions on things like home rule and land agitation to generally Dillon and, Red Dillon and Redmond um, and led his own factions of the parliamentary party throughout. Now those factions were particularly strong in Cork and Collins, the Collins family were particularly active in those factions. Johnny himself, as I say, ran for the United Irish League in 1902 at local level and it seems to have been a very bitter campaign. Bear in mind, Michael was 12 years of age at this uh, time, so he couldn't possibly have failed to notice what was going on. After his failed campaign, Johnny wrote to a local newspaper to say that uh, though the selected candidate for the United Irish League for the above division, my defeat was partly owing to the fact, partly owing to the fact that Mr. E. Barry MP canvassed the electorate against me in favour of a non-leaguer. I doubt very much if the electors of South Cork will be pleased that instead of attending to his business in the House of Commons, their representative should, for personal region reasons, be engaged in defeating the candidates selected by the United Irish League. I will deal at some other time with the treacherous action of one of my opponents. So a 12-year-old Collins was listening to this. He was listening to his brother that was quite annoyed at the kind of mainstream of the parliamentary movement. Johnny continued his loyalty to William O'Brien and he later joined another William O'Brien movement called the All for Ireland League and in 1910 during an election campaign he spoke on behalf of the All for Ireland League candidate and he called the Redmondites uh, quote Molly Maguire Shawneens and Turncourt politicians unquote uh, so again still still substantially uh, anti the parliament there uh, the mainstream of the parliamentarian movement uh, William O'Brien was big on things like land purchase, labour or housing, um, kind of improving the lot of the of the ordinary person was important to O'Brien and important to Johnny Collins too it would seem. Um, Johnny Collins indeed campaigned on behalf of, of labourers uh, on a few occasions, specific labourers in his vicinity to, to secure um, accommodation for them. 
uh, under those early kind of cottage building schemes of the 19th of the early 20th century, which obviously William O'Brien was most heavily involved in too. Um, O'Brien was also, it should be said, willing to make concessions uh, on home rule in order that Ulster would remain within the remit of the Dublin Parliament. He was somewhat different to um, Dillon and, and Redmond, who took a harder line on all of that. Uh, he wasn't actually, Johnny then wasn't the only William O'Brienite in his family. Um, so Michael was surrounded by, by O'Brienite people. Uh, there was Johnny, he had an uncle, Michael, Michael O'Brien, who was um, his mother's brother, and Michael O'Brien was on the Clonakilty Urban District Council for a while. Um, his uncle Danny was also a member of the uh, All for Ireland League. As was Dennis Lyons, and Dennis Lyons is interesting because many of the biographers mention him, but they mention him as a Republican, um, not as a member of the All for Ireland League, which apparently he was. Um, so by 1911, John was seen as a leader of the All for Ireland League in the locality and was instrumental in unifying them with the Irish Parliamentary Party faction in the town of Clonakilty. And that was for a commemoration of the Manchester Martyrs in Clonakilty that year. There was concern that these two nationalist factions would have open division and perhaps worse on the streets of Clonakilty. Um, so the two factions met before the commemoration in order to, I suppose, jointly run the event and ensure that there were no, um, no altercations of any kind. And they were successful in that. Uh, Johnny was, was quite the diplomat when he wanted to be. Um, and when one reads the newspapers of 1911 about that event, one will see that there was a Mr. M.J. Collins of Woodfield that spoke, according to one newspaper account. Um, you begin to wonder if that was Michael Collins's political debut, but unfortunately I don't think it was. It's, it's, um, it was probably, as we go into in the essay, it was more likely a, mis, uh, a misspelling of, of Johnny Collins. So it was Johnny Collins that was similarly involved in that. We know that Michael was in London at the time, so it was highly unlikely that he was speaking at those events. Uh, now, Johnny in 1912 um, actually opposed the social insurance bill for labourers. And as I say, that was maybe somewhat unusual because Johnny was very pro-labour, very, um, very egalitarian in some ways, I suppose. Um, now, he, he opposed social insurance, which would have granted uh, labourers sick pay and things like that. On the grounds that if you were to do that, he, he he argued that the informal arrangements that existed between farmers and tenants in the countryside uh, basically allowed for sick pay anyway. But if you were to formalise that arrangement and um, put costs on top of farmers, then you would see that they would change their operations to less labour intensive um, activity. And you'd see that tillage would be basically substituted for grazing. Uh, now again, it's tempting maybe to see Johnny as the big farmer and the businessman who was basically denying labourers um, nominal kind of social insurance rights. But you would be incorrect, I think, in, in looking at it that way, because Johnny, as I say, was, was, was very pro-labour. Um, and he even at one stage proposed that the labourers would be given key nominations within the All for Ireland League at local level. In other words, that they should be given election nominations uh, ahead of farmers in certain constituencies, which was quite far thinking. Um, you know, for the time, I'm not sure that any political party has, has looked at things quite like, like Johnny Collins did at that time since, you know. 
so by late 1914 he was still supportive of the All for Ireland League, but one of the witness statements tell us that by that time at least he was also a member of the IRB. When he joined the IRB, we're not entirely sure. He could have been in the IRB throughout his, the days of his political activity on behalf of William O'Brien, or he may have joined the IRB uh, in the wake of Collins joining it in London. Um, so I think there's maybe a little bit more that we could perhaps try and figure out about that. Though the IRB being um, a secret organisation, it's, it's difficult to figure these things out. Now, in 1918, uh, again, according to some of the witness statements, Johnny, or as they called him sometimes, Shafter Collins, was, was, was commonly seen in Cork reorganising the volunteers uh, on platforms with his brother Michael. Michael was coming, as we know, into national prominence at that stage, and Johnny, it would seem, was assisting him at local level. Uh, as we know, Michael, as we've just said, Michael would have known that his brother was, was, was very politically active anyway. Johnny was eventually elected to Cork County Council in 1920, by then on the Sinn Féin ticket. Now we're told by several of the, or by one of the witless statements anyway, that uh, there was reasonably widespread uh, voter impersonation during that election. And when I say widespread, I mean, you know, maybe, I don't know, 15 to 20 votes. So I don't think it had a huge result on the, on or a big impact on the result. Nonetheless, it's interesting that uh, it happened on behalf of Johnny Collins, as it happened on behalf of many, many Sinn Féin candidates at the time. Um, so, once he was elected to Cork County Council, of course, that meant he had to go to council meetings in Cork City. And it was on his way home from one of those meetings that he was arrested. And this was on the very same day that the homestead at Woodfield was burned. Um, Michael Collins later left an account of the burning of Woodfield. Um and Tim Pat Coogan reproduces us, reproduces the account in his book. It also Coogan also refers to uh, Johnny having lost his wife just a few months prior to the burning of the house. So I'll read uh, that extract as reproduced by Coogan now. Uh, Colonel Commandant Higginson, the commanding officer of a brigade at the Cork City headquarters of the 6th Division, ordered the destruction as an official reprisal for the attack on Ross Carberry. It should be understood that my brother's place was four miles from Ross Carberry. The enemy force came, bringing with them several of the neighbouring civilians as hostages. Some of the civilians were forced at the point of the bayonet to bring hay and straw into the house. The hay and straw were then sprinkled with petrol, which was also forced. On the arrival of the English forces, the house was occupied by a maiden lady, a maid and eight little children. It should also be explained that quite a short time prior to the burning, the mother of the children had died. She had been in bad health for nearly 12 months, and, no doubt, a succession of raids by British forces contributed to hasten her untimely end. My brother, the father of all the children, was attending a county council meeting in Cork and was not present at the time of the burning. The little children were without anyone to protect them. The English forces proceeded to throw them out of the house, and having done this, proceeded with the burning. The dwelling itself and every out-office were completely destroyed. The hay-shed which contained some hay was likewise destroyed. A farmhand was ploughing in a field near the house. The English forces went to the horses, took the harness off them, and threw it into the fire. The net result, therefore, was that eight young children were left homeless, and there was no person or nothing left to carry on the ordinary work of the farm, so that, of course, production suffered. To complete the story, my brother himself was arrested on his arrival at the railway station at Clonakilty. The timing of the arrest practically coincided with the burning of his house. He is at present at Spike Island, was visited on Friday last, and is likely to lose the use of his right hand as a result of medical neglect. The above are the details 
where in f there were in fact other minor points of brutality which cannot be told except uh, until all the evidence is available. The important thing is that the case is no exception. My brother was over military age, but he had always been an advanced Irishman. He was a member of the Cork County Council. Being over military age, he devoted himself to this work and to general local reconstruction. Uh, so I think an advanced Irishman is certainly uh, a good description of Johnny Collins, uh, much more politically active perhaps than is generally credited as we've, as we've just discussed. Uh, Johnny was then sent to Spike Island and was um, held there. Uh, and I suppose we're told then by, by uh, uh, Royal Dwyer in one of his books that uh, Johnny or that Michael actually applied for a license to go and see uh, Johnny on Spike Island but was refused um, permission, the British saying they couldn't guarantee his safety. This was after the truce that he, he sought out this license. Um, so I suppose without any further ado, we'll pass you on to Tom O'Neill, who'll tell you a little bit about Spike Island uh, and its regime at the time that Johnny Collins was held there. Hello, my name is Tom O'Neill, and I would like to take this opportunity to tell you about my latest book, which is now available. It is titled Spike Island's Republican Prisoners, 1921. And the book is an account of Spike Island and the Republicans that were imprisoned there that year. Because during 1921, the fort on Spike Island in County Cork was the largest British military-run prison for Republican prisoners and internees in the martial law area during the Irish War of Independence. That year, approximately 300 Republican prisoners and 900 Republican internees were imprisoned on Spike Island. The prisoners were men convicted and imprisoned by military courts for their participation in Republican attacks on Crown forces. Internees were imprisoned without trial for their suspected involvement in Republican activities. The book tells the stories of all of these men. And the book also briefly explains the various events that combined to lead to the introduction of martial law in 1920 and the opening of the prison on Spike Island in February 1921. And these events include the breakdown of civil law in what became the martial law area, details of the IRA and the British Army in the same area, an account and a description of the military trials and imprisonment of civilians, details of the prisons and internment camps in the martial law area, and then the story and the detailed story of specifically the military prison at Spike Island. And this then includes the prison routine for the prisoners and internees, the escape of three prisoners, and later the escape of seven internees. The fatal shooting of Captain Patrick White while he was playing holding on Spike. Details of the three hunger strikes and the riots. And then the closing of the military prison on Spike Island. The principal part of the book consists of the details of the 1,200 Republican prisoners and internees. Each prisoner and internee has his own paragraph in the book, accompanied where possible, 
with the photograph of the individual. The paragraphs have biographical, operational and prison details of the individuals. For those of you that are interested in men from a particular county, the following then is the breakdown of the men incarcerated and by, by county. And almost every town in village in the following counties had somebody imprisoned on Spike Island. For example, County Clare. There were 25 internees from County Clare on Spike. There were a total of 719 corpsmen imprisoned there between prisoners and the internees. There were 105 from County Kerry. There were 36 from County Kilkenny. 77 from County Limerick, 85 from County Tipperary, 66 from County Waterford, 53 from County Wexford. And those eight counties in Southern Ireland made up the martial law area because those counties were the most violent counties during the Irish War of Independence. Because this podcast is being produced for the Michael Collins House in Clannacilty, it is appropriate that I mention Michael Collins' brother, Sean, who was held as an internee on Spag Island. Sean Collins, from Woodfield, Clannacilty, age 43, was transferred from the Brigade Cage in Victoria Barracks to Spag Island internment compound on the 16th of May 1921 to A Block, Hut 16. He was suffering from rheumatic arthritis in his hand, and it had been intended that he was to be transferred to Bear Island. But because he required the better medical facilities available on Spike Island, another internee volunteered to go to Bear Island instead. And Sean was later transferred from Spike to Cork Military Hospital in Victoria Barracks on the 12th of October 1921, to receive treatment for his rheumatic arthritis. <clears throat> this book is the first comprehensive history of individuals and events on Spike Island during the War of Independence. From, from my research, I used primary source material from Irish military archives, prisoner and internee autograph books, and original British Army records located in the UK National Archives in Kew, London. The book has 336 pages, approximately 180 photographs and drawings, and signed copies of the book are available from the Michael Collins House. The book is also available from most bookshops across the country and online, price €20. For those of you that would like a brief account of Spike Island during 1921. The military prison in the field was opened on the 19th of February 1921 on Spike Island and consisted of an internment compound and a prison compound. On that day, the first 84 internees were, trans were transferred to Spike Island from, I'll do that paragraph again, <clears throat> On that day, the first 84 internees were transferred to Spike Island from Corknail Jail, the Cork Military Detention Barracks, and from the Brigade Cage in Victoria Barracks. On the 1st of April, they were moved 
from the northeast casemates into A block and then to 25 wooden huts, which was referred to as B block. And this move of the internees was in preparation for the arrival of the first Republican prisoners from Bear Island. And both locations, the A and the B block, were used as the internment compound until the prison closed. And during that year, there were regular transfer of prisoners and internees in and out of Spike Island. All the Republican prisoners were transferred then from Bear Island to Spike Island on the 14th of April, and they were accommodated in the northeast casemates, which became the prison compound. On the 29th of April, three prisoners escaped from Spike Island. The prison chaplain, Fabric Cannon, had conveyed the plans for the escape between the three prisoners and the co-VRA. On the day of the planned escape, the three, Sean McSweeney, brother of Terence McSweeney, the former Lord Mayor of Cork, Cornelius Toomey and Tom Malone volunteered to carry out maintenance work on the Army Golf Course, which was located outside the fort. Of the three, the priority was to get Malone out because the military authorities were not aware that he was the much-wanted IRA leader operating under the alias Sean Ford. He had been imprisoned on his real name, which was Tom Malone. That morning, the rescue party consisting of Commandant Mick Burke, officer commanding the Corps IRA, accompanied by George O'Reilly, Frank Barry and Andrew Butterly, headed from Cove to Spike by boat. When the boat reached Spike, the prisoners were in position. Suddenly, the prisoners sprang into action and Malone attacked the armed sentry. He hit him twice in the head with a hammer and the sentry collapsed. The other prisoners overpowered the two soldiers and the prisoners jumped aboard the boat. The boat headed for Paddy's block near Ringeskiddy and eventually the boat reached the mainland and the three IRA men quickly made their getaway. On the evening of the 31st of May, internee Patrick White from Mealican County Clare was fatally shot while playing hurling on the parade ground by a British Army sentry. Patrick White was shot when he went to retrieve the ball after it rolled under the barbed wire fence that surrounded the internment compound and divided the internment compound from the parade ground where he was playing hurling. He died of his wounds shortly afterwards. IRA internee Richard O'Connell was one of those hurling with Patrick White, and he stated, We were out this day hurling, and the ball went into the wire, and Paddy White rushed over to pull the ball out with his hurling. On Friday the 3rd of June, Patrick White's body was removed from Spike Island to his hometown for burial. It is generally accepted that Patrick White was shot in retaliation for an IRA bomb attack on the band of the Hampshire Regiment outside Jaws earlier that morning, which resulted in the death of seven bandsmen. The IRA staff officers in the prison were constantly planning and arranging events to address the boredom of the men. Football and holding matches were played between the internees on the parade ground. 
Concerts, Irish language classes and autograph books were also very popular. Another successful pastime was making silver jewellery from coins that were smuggled into spike. In keeping with their nationalistic ideals, the jewellery regularly took the form of Celtic design, including tarot brooches, and often engraved with Spike 1921. Several surviving written accounts mentioned the importance of religion to the men while in prison. Father Callanan, the prison chaplain, celebrated Mass daily for the internees, while prisoners were only permitted to attend Mass on Sundays and Holy Days. In addition, rosaries, novenas to the Blessed Sacrament, benediction, confession and confraternity were organised regularly and were very well attended. The men that were imprisoned or interned on Spike Island during 1921 represent a full cross-section of Irish society at the time. The variety of occupations revealed the breadth of support for the fight for independence. Every occupation and profession in the wider community was represented on Spike Island. A hunger strike by internees began on Spike Island on the 30th of August for unconditional release. It lasted four days and was then abandoned. On Sunday, 16th of October, the internees began rising and breaking up their huts. When the British soldiers regained control, they forced the internees out into the dry moat where they endured three cold, wet days and nights without shelter. The internment compounds the A and the B blocks, were uninhabitable after the rites. On the night of the 10th, 11th of November, seven internees, Bill Clerk, Moss Toomey, Tom Crofts, Dick Barrett, Henry O'Mahony, Paddy Buckley and Jack Eddy escaped from Spike Island. That evening, the seven men went through a hole in the wall at the rear of the A block through the sally port and into the dry moat. In the darkness, they made their way to the main pier from where they could barely see a boat further out. Jack Eddy, one of the escapers, swam to it and with a pocket knife, he began to cut the rope. The knife slipped from his frozen hands and he had to sever the remaining strands with his teeth. He pushed the boat ashore and the searched and a search revealed a pair of oars and bits of false branches served as oar locks. All seven men now piled into the boat and came ashore on the east side of Cove. And because of the truth, they could not be rearrested by Crown forces for escaping from custody. On the night of the 16th, 17th of November, the last Republican prisoners were moved from Spike to Kilkenny Jail and 13 of them were part of a large group that escaped from there through a tunnel on the 22nd of November. On the 18th of November, all the internees were taken to Cove and transported by special train to Maryborough, or Port Leash, as it's now called, prison. The Spike Island military prison and field was closed. All Republican internees were released in early December 1921 following the signing of the Anglo-Irish Treaty. 
All Republican prisoners were released in early January 1922 when the treaty was ratified. The stories of Strike Island's approximately 1,200 Republican prisoners and internees are also told in the museum on Strike Island. The museum has photographs, autograph books, medals and other artefacts connected with the men held on Spike Island during 1921. There are two very detailed databases available for use by our visitors where they can research the story of the men. And any original information or photographs of more of these men is always welcome. And then to commemorate the story of the men, Spike Island has launched an exhibition entitled Imprisoning a Nation. The exhibition focuses on the 1921 prison and the stories of the Republicans that were held on the island that year. The exhibition is an extension of the island's permanent independence exhibition, which tells the struggle of Irish independence from 1914 to 1923. Thank you very much. Well, thank you to Tom O'Neill for that very interesting account of the um, period of the Spike Island as a Republican detention centre. And as I say, Tom has been um, centrally involved in the development of, of Spike Island as a tourist asset. And uh, we, we thank him uh, for all his work on, in, in that area as well. He has been uh, central to making it the very fine uh, visitor centre that it is today. Tom's Spike Island book is for sale in, as they say, all good bookshops, and it's certainly for sale here in the Michael Collins House, which is, of course, the best bookshop. Uh, certainly when it comes to revolutionary history of the revolutionary period, we have an extensive collection, and we're proud to count uh, Tom O'Neill's titles among our collection. Uh, the other title uh, that Tom wrote, as I say, being the Clonmult Ambush book of a few years ago. Uh, so thanks to Tom for the talk, and thanks to you for listening. And uh, we will uh, see you again in the near future with the next episode of the Michael Collins podcast. Thank you.